Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. (laughs) Well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Sherry, we are blessed to have some bright, shiny faces across the Zoom boxes from us today on this roundtable recording of the Untoxicated Podcast. Isn't it great to see our friends? It is fantastic. It's fantastic. We've got some people we haven't seen in a while. I know. So this is nice. Some some folks that we've missed, some folks that we interact with a lot, some fairly new folks. This is great. A wide variety. We are going to spend the entire episode today answering a a really kind of heartbreaking, heart-wrenching listener question that I think applies to anyone who is a parent in this situation of dealing with alcoholism, regardless of what your decision has been regarding should I stay or should I go, um, the questions that we're going to address have certainly gone through your mind. And so uh, what we wanted to do was bring in some folks that have a different kind of lived experience than you and I do um, so that we can get kind of all angles uh, addressed. So we're really blessed to have Rachel, Becky, Julie, and Melanie joining us today. Hello, ladies from all across the country. Hello. 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 Oh my God. That was, that was almost harmonized. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was like we practiced that. That was great. Yeah. We don't practice anything. (laughs) Uh, Before we get into the meat of the topic, before we read the listener question that we're going to break down on this episode, I just want to remind everybody, if you would like to ask a listener question of Sherry and I, and who knows, apparently sometimes we ask the, uh, the guests we have on as well. Uh, if you'd like to ask one of those questions, please send that question to matt at soberandunashamed.com. You won't get a professional answer from a therapist or psychologist, but you'll get uh, the ramblings of some people who have some lived experience. So uh, again, matt at soberandunashamed.com if you've got a question you'd like to ask. Here is today's listener question that we're breaking down. Per our parenting plan, my ex-husband has to use a handheld breathalyzer in order to see our child. That's only the very first part of the question. It's It goes into a lot of detail, but I want to stop there because this is something that comes up a lot, um, breathalyzers. And I want to get, because I know some of you have experience with this, I want to get some opinions um, The the kind of most professional setup that I'm aware of is a system called Soberlink. And it's a subscription service as best I understand. It's often one that is court ordered. Uh, You've got everything from that to you can go on Amazon and spend 10 bucks for a cheap and crappy breathalyzer. And so uh, before we dive any further into the question, let's talk about what it even means to use a breathalyzer Julie, I believe in your case, you were you you and your ex were subscribed to the Soberlink system. Is that right? And can you kind of describe what that means? Yes, we are using the Soberlink system. And actually, before that, we had a backtrack, which is just a regular handheld um, breathalyzer that we used for a little bit while I was before we separated. 
Um, but yeah, the Soberlink device is a handheld device that connects either directly to the internet through its own cell phone signal or it connects through the user's cell phone signal with a Bluetooth. And it you have to subscribe through this monitoring service. It costs money for the device and it costs money on a monthly basis for the subscription where the company um, records the results and sends it to whoever you've signed up for it to be sent to. So it can be sent to the spouse, clearly uh, the non-drinking spouse. It can be sent to a um, a recovery coach or it can be sent to like a mediator or lawyer or anything like that, depending on what it says. And my impression is that you can use it as um, you can use it every day as like a, a way to keep track of your own recovery, like a, a I can't think of that name. Accountability. Now, like accountability, accountability. That's the word. Yeah. Big words. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or you can use it like during just parenting time. So there's those options there. And if you like, like let, let's say you're supposed to test twice a day at 9 a.m. and 9 p.m. and you miss, it will send text or email warnings and tell you this has been missed and give you a chance to redeem yourself or... Or, or also notify the spouse that the test has been missed. Like there's all kinds of flexibility to the notification system, correct? Right. And so you enter into a contract with Soberlink, like the, the, the user and whoever they want it to be involved. Like I and my ex have entered into a contract with Soberlink and you kind of work out all those details in the contract. So what time are they going to test? How long do they have to submit the test? Um, in this case, in our case... He's supposed to test at 9 a.m. and 9 p.m., so every 12 hours. He can test as early as 15 minutes before that, so at 8.45, and he can test as late as two hours after that window. So it's a pretty big window, um, and that can be shorter. You can opt for that to be shorter. But So if he doesn't take the test at 9 o'clock, my impression is he continues to get notifications every, I don't know if it's every 15 minutes or every half hour or something, until he either takes it or he misses it. And if he's 11 o'clock and he's missed it, then you get an alert. Um I get it in a text notification and on an email, but that's cost. That's the highest level of notification you can get. You could just get it in a email, for instance, but it's just a it's just an alert that says missed test alert. And if they fail it, you'll get a red a notification that's red and it says failed test, and it'll show you what the uh, the level the reading was that failed it. Anything over zero is considered a fail. And roughly, uh, what's the cost for the unit and what's the subscription with? You've got, sounds like your highest end bells and whistles. Yeah. Do you know what those that, numbers and are? And that was not by my choice. That was by, by his choice. Um, I forgot how much the unit itself cost. It was over, I think, over $150. But the subscription for that highest end, like every single day, all the alerts you can get, I think I think is upwards of $250 a month. It's pretty steep. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And do you do you recall, or does anyone else have Soberlink at a different subscription level? Like, is there a like is the bottom end fifty bucks? Or I mean, I know I'm getting in the weeds, but I think this is stuff that's interesting to people. I'm no, not okay. quite sure what the bottom end is. I think it's it probably starts around a hundred if you're just doing like a parenting plan a month. I would think. And that goes does anyone else? There. Does anyone else have Soberlink experience? No. Okay. How about cheap, crappy Amazon $10 breathalyzer experience? Anyone done that? Okay, so then, Julie, I've got one more question for you then. One of the, the challenges when you do just buy, um, you know, uh, a cheap, crappy, I guess I got no, no other words for that, no creative other descriptors. 
But if you buy just whatever the uh, Amazon's choice is, what's on sale today? The sponsored item. Um, the big problem is I hear we hear a lot. We hear a lot from couples that the uh, it it either has false positives or at least that the drinker claims that it has false positives. Like they will, um, I don't know, drink pickle juice and say that made it register and that's what the problem was. Or they'll have some NyQuil and say that. Whereas it's my understanding that Soberlink, the accuracy is pretty good. Do you ever have those arguments, Julie, about, oh, you know, it says positive, but it was just because I, you know, I, whatever, I, I had some rubbing alcohol after I got an injection. I don't know. Yeah. And certainly, yeah. And mouthwash, mouthwash mouthwash has alcohol in it. So it it will cause a positive result. And I mean, you get what you pay for. If you're going to buy a $10 breathalyzer on Amazon, you're going to you're going to get those results. Something like Backtrack, which is a little bit more expensive. Um, like I said, we have, I had that device as well. Like I'm like pointing at it, like we can all see it. It's a radio or <laughs> podcast, whatever. Um, um, but you know, like if you buy a more expensive device, then it will not have as many false readings out of it. But I mean, this is just any other, um, I mean, it's an instrument and it measures the amount of alcohol percentage in your breath based on a sensor that's in there. So if you're if it's a really good, like well-built sensor, then it's not as likely for you to get, you know, a false positive. And if it's a piece of crap, then yeah, you're you would definitely be more likely to get a false positive there. But certainly and then the device will tell you what to do and what not to do. And the Soberlink makes you um, you know, sign an agreement that for instance you won't eat or drink 15 minutes before you take your test. And that's certainly, you know, recommended. You don't want to have any I don't know, any residual on your breath, because even sometimes we don't think about it, even something like orange juice might have a very small amount of acid or alcohol, something in it that might cause the sensor to be damaged, first of all, or have a false positive or something like that. But um, I, I don't, it's kind of difficult. I, the other thing that you have to remember if you're using these is that there's a, there's like a shelf life for the sensors. You might get to a point where if you've done so many tests, 200 tests, for instance, that it has to be recalibrated. And the device should tell you that, and you have to either send it back to the manufacturer and pay for it to be recalibrated or the sensors to be replaced. And if you don't do that, then yeah, you could definitely get false positives. So you sort of have to be aware of keeping it as just like any other scientific instrument in um, in good shape. We had one, gosh, I think it was only one time where there was a, there was a positive and uh, my ex did call me in basically a panic. And he was like, I'm getting a fall. Uh, this isn't true. I know it's not. And he was freaking out and like crying. And, uh, you know, there are times when I know he's being honest, and he's freaking out. And there are times when I'm like, OK, I don't know what to think here. So, I, I mean, I could tell that he was he was being legitimate here. Um, he thought it read 0.16, which we know would be twice the legal limit. When I saw the result, it was 0.016, which is not very much at all. Um, and then his second reading was 0.008. So if you do some math here, like 0.008 is is not even like a statistically um, relative reading that most devices can even can even read. So it's too small of a reading to say that it was an actual reading. It was probably just that the device needed calibration. So you have to kind of also. Um, but he was freaking out, but luckily I was like, okay, let's not freak out. And I looked at the number, and I'm like, this number is too small to be considered anything but a statistical anomaly so um, but that only happened once and we've had we've been using it for um, since 2021 so a while now well good thing he was he used to be married to a math geek who like likes numbers like that i opened (laughs) i opened an envelope from uh the doctors on blood work once and i made that 
you know, decimal error and sat down on the kitchen floor and cried to myself for a while before I looked at the letter again. I was like, oh, oh no, this is actually great. I'm in, I'm in great shape. So, yeah. uh, yeah. Glad That's you're here, important. Julie. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> so my last question or my last, I guess, kind of warning is with the, Sherry and I, we, we never used a breathalyzer. Uh, but my my warning from experience through other people's use of breathalyzer is either either pay for the quality or don't do it at all. Um, I mean, you said it, Julie, when you said you get what you pay for. But what you get when you pay for a ten dollar cheapie is a bunch of arguments and fights, and you actually hurt the relationship and hurt the trust and create more opportunities for gaslighting and denials and just all kinds of a mess. So either, either go big or go home. Like don't, don't do this with the cheap version would be my humble advice. So let's keep going with this listener question. So, so far we know that um, per our parenting plan, my husband has to use a handheld breathalyzer in order to see our child. She then goes into some of the rules and you know, you, you talked a little bit about this, Julie, about all the different options that are available. It sounds like these rules were court ordered. Uh, he has to go 365 days with daily uh, tests and have no positives and no misses. And if he does that, then he doesn't have to blow every day. But if she requests for him to blow, especially on a parenting day when he is going to have custody of the kids, then he has to meet that request. Um, if he has a positive or he misses, the clock starts over that 365 days. And she goes on in the email to talk about the fact that he is on the fifth restart. And it's, it, it, it was not 100% clear to me. I read it over and over. But either, I think some of the restarts have been for either positives or missed tests during that first year. Other restarts have been when he has made it the full year and then he's not blowing on a regular basis and she asks him to on a parenting day and he comes positive and so starts the clock up again. So her first question is, how can he go a year and then as soon as the external accountability is removed, he starts drinking again? Have any of you experienced situations where your partner had long-term sobriety um, maybe under a situation with accountability, but then as soon as that was gone, the drinking restarted. Does anyone want to want to grab that uh, that question? Any thoughts? I have I thoughts. Can talk. You, yeah, I have thoughts. come on in, Rachel. Um, hi. So our first go around after a stint and detox was nine months of sobriety. Um, there, there was some formal accountability with an IOP program and for monetary reasons, because he also lost his job, um, we could not afford to continue those services past a certain point. So the IOP stopped. We had, our detox was in the end of September. IOP started in October and went through January to the next year. Um, he made it until May and then he relapsed. But there was something that is often talked about 
there was that emotional relapse and there was the relapse before the relapse even occurred probably back in March and <clears throat> at the time I didn't really realize what was happening I just thought that you know he was off a little bit whatever the case may be but where I saw the true effects were with my children because my son in particular his behavior changed towards his father at that March mark and he he knew before any of us knew that the drinking was going to start. There were a lot of precursors to the actual physical relapse of drinking again. But I do believe the fact that he was no longer a part of the IOP, he never joined any type of recovery program, he never had any type of sponsor or any support system, that certainly added to the relapse. The relapse lasted over two years, and he recently checked himself back in this past October to detox, um, was there for a week and supposedly is not drinking currently still. I personally, I, I, but there's no recovery work. There's no accountability. There's no anything. So unfortunately I do believe the same thing will happen. Now my son, he is like my little indicator. He does. He, I think he knows before anybody else does, because as it was explained to me, Children, they see differently, they smell differently, they hear differently, they don't complicate matters like we do because of life experience, and sometimes they're just more intuitive. So I do believe he will know before I will, um, should he start drinking again, and so I just, I keep really in tune with him, that's what I have to do, I have to stay very, very in tune with him, but I do believe that there was some more accountability he would definitely have more success for sure. That's really interesting. We see that a lot where there are precursors, there are indications and maybe they get ignored in the moment. But then once the relapse happens, it's like, Oh, yep. Saw this coming. And that emotional relapse takes place beforehand. Does he acknowledge that? Does he say, Oh yeah. Um, I started to fall apart before the drinking started. No, no. No, he, I mean, I, he truly thought he could control it yeah. on that first relapse. And that first relapse, I was with him. Um, and we went down that road together. But there were some events that took place where I just, I had to say, no, no more. This is out of control. I, I cannot be part of this. The children cannot be part of this. You've got to figure something else out. And that relapse was bad. It was really bad. Um two years. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Does anyone else have experience with long-term sobriety and then a relapse? I don't have any experience with sobriety. <laughs> mm, that's hard. Oh yeah. I have a, uh, some somewhat, I don't know what long-term is, I guess, but six months. Yeah. Was how long, what, uh, what, what was the situation? What caused the relapse? <laughs> um it was inevitable from the beginning i think um he yeah. did uh he did a, a medical detox and pretty much white knuckled it for about six months uh, the whole time he was kind of talking about well you know i'll be able to drink some on the weekends eventually and um you know it's gonna be nice again if i can have a beer while i'm grilling out and it was just like all he talked about and there was 
you know, there wasn't any, any kind of recovery. It was just white knuckle for, for that long. So I knew it was coming the whole time, basically. Mm. Yeah. Really interesting. Thank you, Melanie. Julie, similar. Uh, yeah. Well, there was a long-term sobriety for, for him. He had gone at least a full year on the sober link. Cause I remember I gave him, uh, we were separated, but I gave him a gift. It was like a, um, a ticket to go take our daughter to like a dinosaur event or something. I was like, you know, here's something you guys can do together. You know, I know it, this was hard. You did it after a year. And the and gift then, wasn't a, it wasn't a refurbished sensor for the sober link so that it would maybe it stay polished. Up. Um, uh, Sorry. Yeah, no. And it wasn't very long after that. Um, it's right before we moved from our last um, area to where I'm at now. Um, he stopped working on his own, just decided to stop. And it wasn't long after that. He just randomly stopped testing. So again, he was supposed to test every day, twice a day. And one day he just didn't test. I just saw a missed test alert. And I'm like, what? what's happening right now? Like, what's going on? And like, I, I just didn't, I didn't get it. I'm like, why? So I don't know that, I can't tell you that he relapsed or not, but I can tell you that he stopped testing. And I have no idea why somebody who's paying $250 a month for twice a day testing would stop testing like it's free you just paid for the whole month right it's a month i mean you'd pay for a year subscription and then every month so he's already paid for the full month they're free tests so like you've already paid like why would you not just take them i, I don't know like it makes no sense except you're, you've relapsed so that totally freaked me out it was it was a big thing for me i was like what's happening right now and and he was just like i just don't feel like i should have to do this anymore after a year it's like uh, like just after a year you just don't feel like you should do this like just you know, just you thought you're done. I don't like, but you're still paying for it. Like it's still active. I It made no sense to me, which is why I consider that he probably was relapsing. So that was pretty tough. What was your, so what are the, are there legal ramifications? What were the parent, what was the parenting agreement? So it says like my parenting agreement at that time was not all that specific. It just says twice a day. So at that point he, she wasn't in his custody. My daughter was not with him. So he was by himself not having visitation so because um you know the agreement at that time said just twice a day every day you can't really go back in time and say you know okay she can't because it said it, she, what she, he can have custody of her if he does it twice a day well so that means that tomorrow if he starts again he can have custody of her if he's doing it twice a day so but all i i mean all i could really do is just document it and just save the emails that said there were a missed test or they give you like a monthly summary as well. So I saved all those summaries and it's just, I just have that in case we need it. But I just made sure that he didn't get custody of her until he started testing again, which was a difficult time because it was unpleasant to say the least. So, yeah. You seem very calm and, you know, like you've thought this through and yeah, you just seem really calm about it. But I, I think I remember some of this and it was not a calm, like it was super stressful for you, wasn't it? It was awful. Yeah, this was, and this was the event um, that caused me to no longer text, use text messaging or phone calls with my ex because of the, uh, the rageful texts that I got just kind of sent me into not really a panic attack, but I just was becoming so, um, whenever I heard my phone go off, it would cause so much anxiety that I just decided like, I'm not going to accept these messages anymore but and i i got really freaked out i had sort of an anxiety about um like him taking her when he shouldn't which is i don't think that ever was a, a real possibility but it was just something i had 
uh, you know, got into my anxiety space, I guess. And so those mornings when he first stopped testing after a whole year of it being very consistent, I I went out to the preschool and I took his name off the access list. Our daughter was three at the time um, so that he couldn't pick her up while he was intoxicated. I told the people who worked there that, you know, he was coming off the list and this is what was going on. And I would let them know when the situation changed. And and yeah, it was just really that was really he found out later that I had taken and I told him I took his name off the list and he was extremely angry at that and said, they treated him like crap. The teachers treated him like crap because I have all the bad things I said about him. Like, I don't, maybe you shouldn't have stopped testing. I don't know. But, um, but yeah, so that it was a really, really difficult scenario there. I had to change, you know, I, I had to put just a huge boundary there, which I've stuck to ever since that moment and had to change our schedule for the weekend. I took her to my sister's that weekend because I couldn't, like I needed, I had to change everything. Right. So yeah, yeah it was tough. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I can imagine. Becky, your situation is a little different in that you, you now you don't have a legal separation agreement, right? Because I mean, you're not divorced, you're parenting separately. And so, so what has this situation been like for you? We're not parenting separately. I'm parenting alone and he visits here. Um, so it is different because we, in, in the state that I live, even if we were to be separated, we'd still have to go through legal custody. And I didn't want to do that. Um, when this started, my kids were very small. They were four months old and 16 months old. And, and I already knew that they were not safe in his care alone. I didn't know that it was alcoholism until that point. But I, when I realized it was alcoholism, um, you know, I had hoped he would get help. And instead of getting help, he said, okay, I'll just go leave. Um, and, um, as long as we've been in this kind of situation, he hasn't asked to take the kids alone. Um, but he just comes here to visit. I think, I think somewhere in him, he knows he also can't do it. Um, but I do. And, and since this has happened, he is mostly sober around us. Um, Previously, when he was living in our home, he was drunk most of the time. Um, so we're in a better situation, but I but this has also been going on for almost four years now. And, uh, you know, I don't have a husband and my kids don't have a dad in the house. So um, it's not ideal, but but I feel like they're safe. And I still feel that if he had them, they would not be safe. And I did go down the sober link path and like looked into that and I I it scared me because I realized that there were lots of ways that he could get around it and Julie maybe you and I need to talk offline so I can learn a little bit more um but I just I didn't want to go down that path because I just didn't think that it was that that was even safe um so like meaning like meaning he would blow and then start drinking and you know, know exactly when to stop so that he'd be ready for the next test or someone else blow for him. Or, you know, I just, I read that there were lots of ways to get around it. Um, and it, it scared me. And I also kind of went down the path of divorce or separation. And it, it also like in my state, it just seemed like I had no hope. Um, he, he doesn't have anything legally like saying that he has a problem. You know, I'm the only one 
So it could just kind of, it just seemed hopeless to go down that path. And then he agreed to just visit here. And so it was an easier route. I, I might not be thinking this all the way through and there might be exceptions to this that I'm not considering, but just my initial thought is I hope that there is a special place in hell for anyone who would blow into a breathalyzer for somebody who is court ordered or otherwise required to use a breathalyzer. Um, that is kind of the ultimate example of else. enabling. Yeah. yeah. Ugh, I had somebody ask me once if I'd blow into her thing so her car would start. Yeah. We had a <laughs> I, I, guy in my I town. I said, thanks for the opportunity. Guy in my town that would pay people to, yeah, because he had a car start like blower thing. All right. Know? I'm going to stick yeah. with my special place in hell statement mm-hmm. then. Becky, um, bring us back to the beginning of the four years. Um, first of all, before I ask that, what, what is the visitation frequency? How often is is like every Wednesday he comes for dinner? Yeah. Um, every Wednesday, every other weekend, um, in the beginning, it was every day he was coming every day and, um, but he's not, but he wasn't treating me as a wife. You know, I was the one who was calling out the problem. So he was very mean to me. Um, And so then I cut it down to like, nope, if we're doing this, like you cannot come here every day and you can't treat this like it, like it didn't happen. And you're just staying somewhere else and you're going to drink after you leave here. Um, And he was living with his parents. And um, so I cut it down to where where it was like a divorce. It was every Wednesday, every other weekend um, he would spend with us. And then probably about six months ago, I said, you know, I'm in a better place. If you want to come every day, you can come every day. And he added Tuesdays. So he now comes Tuesday, Wednesday, and every other weekend. Take us back to uh, the beginning of this. You know, this is a unique arrangement. And it sounds like it's working as as best as it could be for you right now. But were you, like, what was the thought process as far as what if he wants to take the kids off-site? And what if he demands it because he's their father and you have no legal way to stop him. Was this the kind of stuff that was going through your mind? No, I knew he wouldn't do that. Um, because he doesn't want to do that. Like he doesn't actually want to take them. He knows he can't handle it. I think in some, on some level. And I I mean, I did go down a path kind of the same way of like with daycare, I took his name off everything. I said, he could not pick them up. You know, I was kind of scared in the beginning that he would try something like that. Um, But, but I also knew that like part of the reason I realized it was alcoholism was because when we had kids, um, he changed and it got worse. He, he realized, I think that he, they were, they were causing his alcoholism to not be as important in our lives. Mm, Wow. Thanks for sharing all that, Becky. Melanie. Your husband passed away, um, died from a you know head trauma, a fall, probably seizure induced, probably withdrawal seizure induced. Um, we're so sorry for your loss, first of all. But I thank you. I, I'm curious how this this whole concept of uh, shared custody. Uh, do you trust or do you not trust the person? Um, caring for your kids. Um, did, did these kinds of thoughts play into 
your decision making as it relates to should I stay or should I go? And can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, yes, it very much so did. Um, I, my situation is a little different in that Scott didn't have a problem with alcohol until later on in our marriage and the kids were a little bit older. But my youngest daughter is on the spectrum. Um, so even though she's well, she's 17 now, but she was probably like, I don't know, 15, 13 when it, things got really bad. Um, and I'm kind of her rock. Um, so leaving her, the thought of having him have time with her alone was sort of terrifying to me. Yeah. Um, so, and we had the only experience I had with it was, um, there was a time where he said, you know, go on vacation, go on vacation. You, you deserve this and go with your friend. And so I did that. And, um, um, she, she, I arranged for her to stay most of the time with my sister, but there was times where my sister couldn't have her. So she was at home with uh, her dad and, and her older brother. And it was just not a good situation. It was just horrible. It, she was upset and he had little patience with her. Um, and sometimes in my mind, it almost seemed like he his behavior were like to tease her and provoke her where, you know, she's a, this is going to upset her. Why are you acting this way? You know, and it was like I had to parent both of them. Um, together to and it was more like you know there were he was a sibling just like poking at her that way and so yeah it was definitely something that I didn't want to have to leave her and based on that situation it would have been horrible for that to happen so um so yeah that was definitely something that I that weighed on me as far as leaving and having to set up some sort of custody with her um, was one of the reasons that I didn't leave, I guess. Um, so yeah, it definitely played into it. Mm -hmm. Now does your state, I'm just curious because I was thinking of when Becky was saying in her state, you know, Becky knowing that he has issues with alcohol and he is an alcoholic, that's the only like on record thing. So then therefore the custody would just be a mess. And it just irks me when I think of that in each state and how that's different. I do know some states say if a child is over a certain age, they can make a decision that they want to not have that. Would that be something that would have had, would have been okay for your daughter had not this situation panned out? Like, would she be able to say, I don't want to be with him? Or do you think he would yeah. have fought that? And I think that might be, and I don't know if that's like a 16. Um, I'm not sure what the age is in Minnesota. I never really checked into that. But I also know that in a lot of ways, she does want to be with him. So I don't know if she would have been able to say without having a lot of guilt that, you know, I don't want to be with him. I don't know if that would have, if she would have done that. So, yeah. Well, and you have a child that's on the spectrum or any sort of um, other issues like you're right. And then just also having to admit to your parent that you don't want to be with them, but you do, but you don't know how to explain it. Like that's a lot right. of pressure for a kid. So. Right. Yeah. Right. Thank you, Melanie. Rachel. So you talked about a two year long relapse. We've known you for, for most of those two years during that period of time was what, what was visitation like? Like he was kind of like what Becky said, he would come to the house to see the kids. Is that right? 
That is still our situation. <laughs> um, yes, so visitation started. I We kind of created like a two-day-a-week plan. He would actually pick the kids up from an after-school program and bring them home. For a long period, I was not concerned with him. You know, he would leave his job. He would go pick them up. He would bring them home, do dinner with them. He would have to be in charge of, you know, cooking for them, getting them ready for bed, getting homework, all that stuff done. And I used to take that opportunity to do the house shopping or maybe go for a walk or, you know, whatever. Um, As his drinking escalated and as I could see him deteriorating more and more, I was concerned, but my concern was more about the weekends and you know i would talk to him i'd be like hey are are you doing okay are you back to like having to drink or is this just like wh- where are you like is this now necessary for you to function or and he would say oh no 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 i just you know had a bad weekend and whatever so that went on for a while and then i will never forget my children and him they went to the park it was on a sunday after i think it was a sunday afternoon um, maybe a Saturday. I don't remember. And I am very open with my children. Thanks to echoes. Thanks to all the work that I've done myself that I, we talk about alcoholism. Like we talk about the sky is blue. Um, at the time my kids were seven, I have twins. So they're the same age. Um, and they were at the park. They went over to the fishing area, they did a little fishing, they got back in the car to go back to the park, and they witnessed him take a blue bottle out from underneath the driver's side of our family vehicle and down it in front of them. And they came home, and they were not even on my front porch, and I could hear both of them. Mommy, we got to talk to you. We got to talk to you right now. Something really bad happened. Something really bad. Like, we have to talk to you right now. And they did. Um, My daughter was mortified, sad, went to her room, screamed and cried. My son, I think he looked to me as, like, his rescuer because he knew that this was not okay. Um, Their father was beside himself. He was very, very upset. He was crying. He was all the stuff and things. And I just, I went into my daughter's room. I scooped her up. I scooped her twin brother up and I just helped him. And I just said, I'm so sorry. You know, we never wanted this to affect you this way. We never wanted you to experience this, but this is our reality. And we're going to get through this one way or another. Um, he came into the room a bit later and he apologized to both of them and said that he was so sorry and that he is sick and he needs help and their brains, they did not understand why he's not getting help. What? Go to the doctor. You know, we, we can go see, we can go see Dr. Nick. Daddy, he'll help you. Um, they didn't understand that part of it. Luckily. At the time, um, we had just gotten a fabulous counselor for them. I had just gotten them into counseling. 
we were about two months in to seeing their counselor and the timing couldn't have been more perfect because she was really, really able to help both of them and me through that part of explaining the illness and explaining that he has no control, um, understanding that he has to do it. He has to drink in order to be able to survive right now, because if he does quit, he will die Mm. cold Turkey. Um, because that's where he was. So that continued up until this past October. So you're talking probably March of last year until this October. So the kids must have been relieved that he went in and did a medical detox when he did decide to quit in October because they knew knew enough to know that it's dangerous to quit on his own. That must have been a relief for them. It, it was. They were very happy. Um, we did have a discussion as a group about it, that he was going to go get this help. And um, now my daughter thought it was going to fix everything. Mm. He would get out and he would be all better and daddy can take them places now. Because there is no driving. There is no, there's none of it. Like, I do not leave him alone with them. Um, I do, I am always here. The blue bottle was the straw that broke the candle's back, camel's back. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it's essentially, if it was court ordered, I guess it would be considered um, supervised visitation. Mm -hmm. Um, But in that moment, when that blue bottle came out, that too was all I, I mean I went to anybody and everybody that the kids had contact with that had his name or phone number as an emergency resource take it off immediately it was replaced yeah. with my mother's and because I knew I couldn't count on him <clears throat> um so it, it has been very difficult for my daughter because she thinks that this is signed sealed and delivered it's done Um, Very much like him, because 30 days into it, this last stint, he asked me if he could go ahead and drive with them. I said, no, 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 no. Um, And no, you cannot be alone with them. I'm sorry. I'm like, I need more time. I need, I need to have confidence that you are actually living a sober life, not just not drinking. There's, there's a complete difference. Um, and because we have so much documentation, both from my therapist, the kids' therapist, their school, um, you know, he could try to fight me on it, but there's no way. Yeah. Well, that idea that sobriety is the solution is uh, it's prevalent, right? And you've you've just been doing this for long enough that you know that it, it takes much more than that. Um, I'm glad you brought up um, communication with the kids. That is part of this listener's question. She says, how do you deal with talking to your kids? Um, and in her own particular situation, this involved uh, with their dad going missing in action during his relapses. And then just in general, how do you deal with talking to them? So thank you for leading into that, Rachel. Julie, how about you? What kind of communication do you have with your daughter? Um, because you are co-parenting and he does have custody and because you're a good person and he's a good person. I think you you try to avoid dad bashing. Is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I have a boundary condition for myself not to speak poorly um, about him to her. Um, That's definitely something I work really hard to make sure um, myself and all our family members understand as well. I am. She so she was three when the separation event occurred. And so she's six now. 
So there really hadn't been, and he's, I don't like, I, I hesitate to say he's sober. Cause like I said, he, he went the full year and then something happened and then he picked it back up again. So there's been quite a long time where he was testing. Um, right now he's chosen not to test every day. He's just testing when he has custody, um, which we only just recently, literally in the last month have um, put into a, a, a new parenting agreement in the state that I live in now because I'm just sort of like done getting these missed tests and I'm kind of like, you know, what's the point of him testing every day if he's just going to ignore it? Um, but she, she and I have not specifically talked about his situation um, and that he's sick because is he, I mean, something's wrong with him for sure. Uh, I can say that because he's not recovering. There's definitely something going on. Um, I just don't know exactly what, cause I'm not a, uh, licensed therapist. I can speculate all day long, but who, who really knows, but he's not like bad enough that, um, I, I bring it up to her and I have a concern that if I bring something up to her, like, uh, daddy's sick or something like that, she'll tell him and then it'll come back to her or me and it'll just be way worse. So right now my, um, my goal is to talk to her in general about drugs and alcohol and why, you know, we choose not to. Like if I have a non-alcoholic uh, beer or something like that, I will explain to her why it doesn't have alcohol in it for me and explain why, uh, you know, that alcohol is a, to a neurotoxin, you know, and you have to be super careful with it. I try to ex just explain those things to her in a very generic sense so she kind of understands that. Um and that's kind of where I've gone with it. One thing I have leaned hard in with her is emergency procedures. I have taught her how to um, use my phone if she has to call 911. Um, I try to get her to make sure she knows what my phone number is, and she does know. Um, so and she's, there's like a practice 911 app that you can download so they can you know pretend like they're calling it, and they can talk to a, an AI operator. So we've um, practiced doing that several times. And I always just tell her kind of generically, like if something were to happen – you know, and, and we just turn me and we live in a three level townhome. So if I fall down the stairs, can you call for help in my case? Um, but also I reciprocate knowing I, and I don't the only thing is I don't know if if my co-parent has taught her how to use his phone because it's different than mine. Um, but I just hope that, you know, she understands emergency procedures at her age now of six. But it was definitely a concern, you know, when she was much younger, Um you know, when you had to like help her walk up the stairs, I'm like, Jay, I really, really hope he's watching her walk up the stairs, you know, um, those types of things. Um, but yeah, that's, yeah, that's where we're at. Yeah. Very interesting. I didn't know there was a practice, uh, you know, 911 app. That's, that's good fantastic. information. Yeah. I didn't know yeah. that either. Yeah. Becky, what's communication like for you and your kids with your situation? So my kids are newly five and almost four, um, and they know about alcohol, um, and they know that their dad has a problem with it. And obviously they were very small when this happened or when it became apparent in my eyes. And I was very scared to say anything to them and the same reason that I didn't want them to go say something to him. I didn't want it to be that I'm trying to, you know, tell them things that aren't true because he doesn't believe that he has a problem. Um, and I didn't want it to be something that came up if we did have to go to divorce, that I was telling them things that aren't true, even though they are true. Um, and I'm still scared of that. But 
you know, I've talked through it with my therapist and, um, and came to the conclusion that they needed to know that we're in a unique situation. They don't know why their dad's not here. Um, you know, and everyone else has a dad in their house. And, um, and so, so they would ask questions kind of the same way if there was, if we were around alcohol or like, we were at a bridal shower and my daughter wanted the pretty drink. And I was like, Oh, you, you can't drink that. And this is why. And so for probably a year, I went through, through that, like anytime something would come up as an opportunity for me to teach them about it, I would tell them like, if someone was smoking on the street, they're like, what's the, what's that guy doing? And I'm like, Oh, well that's smoking. And this is why we don't do it. Um, and so I kind of built that up for a while and then finally one day on the way to school like they were like why is he not living with us and like because he's one of those people that has a problem with alcohol and they were like oh you know so I don't I don't know how much they fully get um but they do know and and I also kind of went down the path of telling them like you know dad doesn't know that he's sick so even if we said something we can't change him and which I think is a good life lesson. You can't change people in general. Um, but also, you know, I didn't want them to go to him and say something. And then a few weeks later, they did say something to him. And it was when I was out of the room, um, you know, as a three and four year old, they're very smart. Uh, they were waited until I was out of the room and they said something to him about why he won't quit. And he was very mad, um, but the situation passed. And my three-year-old still says things to him about it. And he, he will say, well, everyone drinks. Like he tells him everyone drinks, um, which isn't ideal, but um, I'm glad that they know and that they'll keep building an understanding of it as they get older. Yeah. I think just the situation you're in is probably the best lesson in education if there if there's conflicting messaging like if he's saying everybody drinks because they're going to grow up in a stable home with you and see that you've made the decision you have and you're the one that's per, providing for them on a daily basis and and nurturing and caring and loving them and i just think when i think about the messages the things that we have talked to our kids about versus them just picking up what we're putting down from uh, the way we live our lives standpoint, I think the the way we live our lives stuff um, gets through way more, especially as they get older and they're teenagers and the the very and last thing in the whole world they want you to do is talk to them. Um, then, you know, hopefully they're picking up, uh, you know, on what's going on as yeah. opposed to what you're saying. I remember when our some of our kids were little and they would say, well, everybody drinks. And I was like, no, that's a choice. You don't see your, you know, your other grandmother drinking or, you know, like I would name other family members, mostly my side of the family. Um, <laughs> mostly. That doesn't drink. And I would say, well, that's a choice. You can choose to drink or not. Yeah. You know, and I say, th I would say things to them like, you know, when you were drinking and I would occasionally have a drink, I would say, I'm having a drink because we're in a very safe environment. There's many other adults that are not drinking that are watching, like kind of set up that scenario because it would sometimes worry our oldest. Um, like when we were on vacation because of the way you would drink out of hand and that would make her anxious. Yeah. And then if she would see me drink, she would like start to panic. Yeah. So. Uh, 
Melanie, ha- have had you talked to your kids when they were younger, before your husband passed, about alcohol, uh, maybe about addiction, and did that have any impact on how they have handled the fact that they're they have lost their father? Um, yes, there was a lot of discussion. Of, uh, really, I would say he kind of forced the issue because uh, on his many attempts to quit, um, he was very scary. Um, hallucinations, uh, people coming out of the logs in our home, um, just the, he had very vivid, uh, auditory and visual hallucinations on multiple occasions. And that was, I mean, there was a, I remember a time he had my son out on our screen porch, looking down at the garage, filming on his phone, the people that were moving items into our garage and there were, there were squatters in the top of our garage. Um, so, I mean, obviously that led to a lot of questions <laughs> from the kids. Um, uh, so yeah, and you know, it was always, it was a, it's a, I talked to him a lot about it being a poison and that, um, that, that does a lot of damage and coming off of the poison does a lot of damage. And, um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's been very much talked about, very much known um, that it's an issue, um, the kind of things that I think they should look for and be careful of in their cho- life choices also. Um, so yes, it's it was, like I said, it, there was really no way to avoid it when they sort of some of the things that they saw, unfortunately. There's nothing easy about what your family has been through these last nine months, but did the fact that you had talked about it, did it, uh, did it, I don't want to use the word easier. Did it, did it make it more comprehensible? I, I don't know. I, I, maybe, I guess I, maybe it was like not a total, it was still, it was so shocking that it, it's, I can't sure. say it wasn't shocking, but it, maybe there was somewhat of a level of preparation in that, you know, this is, wasn't the first time he had a seizure. It wasn't the first time, um, that he, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that for sure, but, um, yeah. I'm sure that it was uh, uh, not a totally incomprehensible situation because of the past things that had happened. I mean, I think that probably with the exception of my daughter that's on the spectrum, which it was pretty much that was not something that she expected. So, yeah. Yeah. So it's like they had some foundational information and then, cause they're older than your daughter, your other children are older than your daughter. So they could probably go back into times of the, you know, and, and say, Oh, well that was probably a time when dad was over drinking and, and kind of build their own knowledge. So when it did happen, when the fall did happen, they probably could piece some of that puzzle together a little bit because you were being informative of that to them and they yeah. were comprehending some of this stuff. Yeah, I think the older two. It. Yeah, the old, older two, I'm I'm sure were, yeah, it's, it was more understandable of why. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Ugh, still so hard. Thanks for 
thanks for talking to us about it. Um, okay, the last part of the listener question, and then actually I've got a couple of follow-ups of my own, uh, so we're not quite off the hook yet. But the last part of the listener question, I, I want to just throw this out and see if anyone wants to address it, because I don't want to put you on the spot if you don't want to. The listener asks, how do you ever trust anyone in a new in the dating world? So how do you how do you start dating in a culture where alcohol is everywhere? By the way, we're we're on Zoom recording with them and I can just nodding heads, look of disgust. Shaking all heads, on, not yeah. nodding. No, I'm sorry, shaking <laughs> heads, look of disgust on the screen. So I think that's a, a pretty bold question that it is a bit. Yeah. Nobody wants to take a stab. I understand. I'll, I'll, I'll take it. I'll oh, stop. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead, Rachel. <laughs> so, so the disgusted I mean, look on I'll, your face doesn't mean you don't want to talk. I'll, I like that. I'll, Come I'll on. Stab. Um, so here's the thing. Like, I mean, I'm a solid three years into active alcoholism. Well, okay. Let, give myself some more credit. I'm going to say an active four years. But I can go back and recognize this was active alcoholism. The two years prior to that, I guess maybe we were leading there. So together, 24 years, like 24 years of a relationship, four years of of active alcoholism, two detox things, you know, sobriety here, there, whatever. I had to stop. Like, I think there's a period for anybody that's in our shoes that has this yearning for a connection with another human that is going to help you and lift you up and be your partner and go on this journey for you, right? Because, like, we all got married, so, like, we all have this, like, thing in our head, right, at some point, but I have to learn to be 100% happy, satisfied, and content with life on my own. And forget all that nonsense, dating, introducing kids to people, you've lost your darn mind. This is, this is so fresh. This is four years. Like, no, 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 we're not there yet. We're, we're, we are not there yet. This person is not ready. But I have spent the last year in serious trauma therapy because as my fellow echoes from when I first started, I didn't believe that any of thing, anything that I experienced was traumatic because my situation isn't like Melanie's. My husband did not pass away. My children's father did not pass away. My situation is not like Becky's where he's not nice and he's ugly and he's mean, whether to be me or the children. That's not my situation. Julie, I know some of the stuff you went through and some of the ugly, harsh things that were said to you that's not my situation mine was just an apathetic you know kind of pee on top of a pile of mashed potatoes for a very very long period of time but i didn't realize that that was actually trauma and the things because of his inability to connect to me emotionally I just didn't realize that. So I had to do, I have to, I still have a lot more work to do before I can even think about connecting or dating or seeing someone else. Now, is there a yearning? Of course there is. We're, you know, watch your mouth, Rachel. Um, 
<laughs> you know, we we are women, but that there's just there's there's so much more that comes before that, and it all has to do with inside and repairing the damage that you've been through and healing those wounds before I can even consider any of that nonsense. I was just reading something interesting about trauma, um, talking about how it accumulates. It's cumulative. It's not, you know, certainly there are people who experience massive one-time deals that are life-changing and, and awful. Um, but there is also, but trauma is also a cumulative thing. And especially in alcoholic relationships, one of the the real, the universalisms is that the drinkers, we are really good at compartmentalizing and taking a bad situation, apologizing or not, you know, that happens sometimes, sometimes there's no apology, but either way, shelving that and saying that happened, I'm going to try not to let that happen again, and then moving on. Whereas when you're on the receiving end of it, when, when you're the loved one of an alcoholic, each of those incidents just piles on top of the ones prior. And, and so you absolutely have to focus on yourself and deal with the accumulated trauma issues. Um, and it makes total sense that you want to do that before even considering the listener's question. Does anyone else have a take on this idea of trusting someone again? I'll go. Um, so I think when, when we first met, met, first met Matt and Sherry, I think you guys asked the question, like, what have you thought about divorce? Like, when is that going to happen? And that's the question I get all the time. And I think, you know, I'm, it's, we're going on years now, but in the beginning I was like, why, if this is working and I don't have to leave my kids alone, why would I get divorced? I don't want to date. Why would I want to date someone when I'm just going to end up with someone else like that? Um, but I think I know enough now through my own therapy and my own work and um, focusing on myself that I I can see it in people now. Um, you know, being an alcoholic makes you narcissistic. Uh, sorry, Matt, but I I once you once you come out of the alcoholism, the narcissism hopefully goes away. But um, I can see that in people now and, and even in the beginning when, you know, there's like the phase where they try not to show that I can still see through it. And it's because of the work that I've done for myself. Um, and that's what I would say to, to this person about keeping your kids safe. It's you have to focus on yourself and get better first. And that's the best way to keep them safe. Great advice. It makes a ton of sense. Oh, Okay. So beyond the listeners' questions, I, I have a couple of thoughts as well. Um, this one is kind of hard to ask, um, but Julie, I'll direct this to you. You know, as time <laughs> why are you laughing? Because I'm making Julie ask the hard yeah. one. Yeah. Sorry, Julie. It's all about math. <laughs> it's yeah. I have a math question for you. Right. Um, <laughs> no. I, it's kind of actually the opposite of a math question. It's very much about emotions and feelings. You know, when when I am afraid of something or I have reservations about something, what I have found is over time, some of the reservations just go away because the bad thing didn't happen. And if I look at it, I'll think to myself, there's the same possibility of it happening now as there was when I first started worrying about it but I've almost just gone numb to the possibility that this could happen. We're talking about your children and you are 
wonderful, wonderful mothers and nurturers. And, and I just know in all four of you, I know that the fact is that there's nothing that would be a higher priority for you than your kids. But over time, as you're dealing with this week after week, month after month, year after year, does the worry start to fade only because you just can't, you can't stay in that elevated place of constant worry anymore. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, I mean, it does make sense. And I don't think you ever stop worrying about your kids because you um, had a story in the beginning there, Matt, about, you know, they're getting, you know, your college age children and you get worried about them in the middle of the night. So I don't, I mean, I don't think you ever stop worrying about your kids, especially, I mean, if even if they're staying with a babysitter, you're going to worry about them. But certainly when you hand them over to a uh, a person who's ill, um, it's really, yeah, it's really really difficult. And, um, you know, one thing that I do a lot of, um, cause I definitely have anxiety is, is rabbit holing. And I think there's some, there's some useful things when you rabbit hole, uh, sometimes, uh, so what I mean is I sometimes will think, what would I do if my co-parent did not pass his sobriety test? Like tonight, like right now, like if I get a, they're drinking, what would I, like, what am I going to do? And of course, unlikely to happen like that's the rabbit hole right you're like what would i do oh my god what i have to go get her like i gotta gotta get it in the car and blah blah blah. I gotta blah. and it's like you just start freaking out but sometimes it's useful like i say okay do i need to go down this anxiety rabbit hole or not but sometimes i do like i need to go down the rabbit hole and say okay julie what's the worst thing what's what's gonna happen like what would happen what would you do if you saw this then what would you do okay i'd get my code i'd call this person i'd call the police i'd go blah 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 and then it's like if you think of a for me, I'm a planner. Oh, this this whole alcohol, we don't have any control over alcohol. It puts us in this thing of needing control. I do need control. So I'm a planner. So I think, what would I do if this were to happen? This terrible, awful, probably unlikely, but who knows? If this were to happen, what would I do? And I think, like, where am I at right now? Where is this person located? What's the number of the local police? And you keep all those things in, like, a little emergency kit or whatever you need in your phone or something. And it's like, yeah, I would call this person, whatever. And then I would go get them. And that's why I would have the police with me in case he said, no, you can't have them or whatever. You know, like, so there's like, there is like a reason to go down a rabbit hole and make your plan and have it ready. Um, some rabbit holes, you probably have to be like, okay, this is so super unlikely that I'm just causing myself a little bit more harm here. But I think you have to be kind of aware of it. But um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of worry there. My current um, worry, my, my ex is very good at the sobriety test when... Uh, our daughter's with him. I have a concern about his mental health state in general. I think it's pretty poor. So that's kind of hard. Um, but it's not, um, the legal line is pretty, it's pretty further along than you think it would be. So I think it has to be pretty bad for someone to be able to say you're not mentally well enough to take care of your kid, which is sort of unfortunate in our legal, uh, the legal world. But I also have a concern about drugs and about medicine. Um, and there's no, well, there are tests for drugs and medicine, but I don't have any legal backing to say that this person should test for, test for, um, drugs or any sort of, um, thing. I mean, cause he did have an incident with NyQuil, which caused our separation or it didn't cause it. It was an incident that did eventually lead to our separation a catalyst there. Um, but like NyQuil or using prescription medicine or uh, we've talked about marijuana in our support group before, like all those things that concerns me that that could be happening. But then there's just this 
again, there's some rabbit holes you can go down and some you can't. And all I think I can do, what can I do? What do I have control over? Well, I can make myself prepared and I can, can I can prepare my child as best as I can. Like she knows what to look, emergencies to do, who to call. Right now he's living with another uh, person, an, an older person. So that is good that there's another, I think, mature adult in the house to help. So, you know, there are some contingencies there that you just have to kind of put in place to lessen the worry. So when, yeah, contingencies and and like you said, the rabbit holes and the pre- preparation, but when it's things like you said that you don't have a leg to stand on to ask for testing for, for instance, you know, you can work, you can tie yourself up in knots thinking about it, but does that just fade over time? Because you, you, you appreciate the fact that there's nothing you can do about it anyway and and so I'm not saying you're not you're not diligent and you're not thinking about it, but do you think less about it? I mean, you've got to you've got to get out of that hypervigilance mode in order to survive and thrive as an individual, don't you? Yeah, I think so. And as a lot of folks know, I'm like uh, two or three years now, three almost removed from our separation. So it's you know it takes a while, but when you've come down from that hypervigilance and it and you do come down from it, there is a. Re- you know, a point where you're not always on this high, then you can worry about these other things and enough, you know, like, yes, I will always worry about my kid being in this, any person's care, but especially this person's care. Um, But I I can worry about that because I'm not freaking out about everything else. I'm not walking on eggshells in my space right now because I have a safe space. So it's kind of like there is more room for that or there's a safe, there's a safe space for that kind of worry now. And it doesn't consume me. And I have the tools, um, you know, through my own work and through the support of this network um, to to sort of work through that and be in a place where I, I can hold enough worry, but it not be, you know, consuming me where I'm not in a healthy space. Mm, really interesting. Becky, you said that a little while back, the situation changed such that you invited him to, well, you you opened it up to he could come by every day and and he added a day to his visitation. What, what changed? Did you, was any of that, what we're talking about here? Did you start to kind of come to terms with the situation and yourself relax and stress less about it? Yeah, I, I feel 100 times more safe. I think in the beginning, I was very wrapped up in his denial. Um, and I was in denial and he was very emotionally abusive and I wasn't sure what was right and what was wrong. And it was very scary and it was very, his, he was trying to control me by using the kids and I wasn't sure what he was going to do. And as I have learned more about alcoholism, learned more about manipulation and um, done therapy for myself and and gotten better for myself, I know that I'm much safer um, and that his, his manipulation was more threats trying to scare me. Um, rather than anything else. And I think in the beginning, my therapist told me that, you know, my kids only need one safe parent. And I didn't know what that meant or what that looked like, but I do, I know now that I'm the safe parent. And as long as they have me, that they're going to be safe. Mm, so important. So important. Rachel, are you proud of yourself for setting the boundaries you have, learning the way you have? you know, drawing the line in the sand and, and, and holding to it. Are you as proud of yourself as I, I personally think you should be? Yes. Yes. Um, 
this has been a very, very difficult battle. <clears throat> um, but I am so incredibly proud of where I've come to. The fact that I can draw the line in the sand when he got out this last time of detox, he was trying to come over every day to see the kids. I just told him, I said, they can't be what keeps you sober, what keeps you from drinking. You cannot use them as an excuse to not drink. That's not fair to them. That's too much of a burden to put on them. And I've learned so much about myself and about parenting and about that emotional connection, not only between me and my kids, but also me and myself. Like I have, I have really tuned into emotions that I had put, I had thrown those underneath. I don't know. Like I don't, I put them in a basement somewhere. We don't even have basements in Florida. And I put them in a basement. I attached concrete to them. I threw them at the bottom of the river, sailed them down the ship, whatever. I didn't even realize I had all of these emotions. I didn't realize what I had buried. I didn't, I mean, again, we're talking about a 20 plus year relationship. And, you know, for most of it, that was, alcoholism was not a problem, but there were a lot of other fundamental problems, <laughs> foundational problems. Um, so yes, I am very, very proud of what I've done. I am so proud of my kids. Um, the work that they've done over the past year to emotionally regulate themselves, because I'm sorry, this age between six and eight, I don't know where it goes from here, but the emotional deregulation that children go through at this age is unlike anything I've ever experienced. And I mean, we have had some crazy stuff but they have just they have done so so very well and they use their tools and they're proud of their work and i'm proud of them and i'm proud of me oh that's great that's great uh julie i'm going to give you the flip side of that um do you ever all the 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 procedures you've put in place the rabbit holes the contingencies does that give you peace of mind or do you ever second guess, um, you know, the decisions that you've made? Is is that something that you struggle with at all? Yeah, absolutely. It still is. I know it's kind of hard to believe and um, since it's been so many years and, but yeah, you still struggle. I definitely still struggle with guilt for leaving or for having made this decision. Um, gosh, just, it was just this week, there was an incident where um, the uh, before school care program teacher um, asked me if my daughter's dad was, what did he ask? How did he ask it? Is, is he involved? Is what, is he involved? I'm like, that's an interesting, I'm not sure. Depends on how you, depends on how you define involved. And and the person was only asking just to know what the situation is, not trying to be nosy or judgmental, of course. And, you know, I just said, you know, yeah, he's involved in, but doesn't live close by, lives 90 minutes away. So, you know, we're, we're on an every other weekend kind of visitation and, you know, because this teacher had never seen, um, you know, my daughter's father. So, um, you know, and so I think that's kind of speaks, I mean, he knows it's, there's the involvement is, is just that. And it made me really think, cause I can hear my ex's voice saying, isn't this what you wanted? Isn't that what you wanted? I gave you everything you wanted. 
Um, and he that was something that he said a lot, which isn't true. And and then I have to, you know, then I have to sit and talk. I go to my support group when that happens. I talk to several people in the group and everyone. Is, of course, that's not you what you wanted. It's what he wanted. That's what he chose. Um, but it does make me feel guilty because I'm like, well, here it is. And I, I guess the teacher was trying to say that also he observed that some of the kids were talking about their dads and my daughter was just very quiet. She didn't participate in the conversation. And that kind of it just made me really sad for her because I'm like, maybe she doesn't know what to say um, because um, I don't think he's working right now. So I don't think she knows what he does or can't participate in that conversation. And he's not around that much because of how far we are. So I just thought it was kind of sad for her. And I was immediately I was like, how can I fix this? Because I'm an engineer, um, but I'm not that kind of engineer. I can't really fix that. So but I was thinking, well, what can I do? And then I'm thinking, oh, she needs like a godfather or something. I need like. We talk about relationships. I'm like, she needs like a, a adult man in her life that's normal and nice and can show, you know, and I'm like, oh, who's close by? I'm just going through like this list of, you know, I'm going in a rabbit. It's a rabbit hole. Let's just be real. It's a rabbit hole. Um, but when it came down to it, luckily, there were some really great support people. Um, my family members, my sister, several of the ladies in our group, you know, just sort of helped me out. One had a perspective where, you know, her father wasn't in her the picture, but, you know, was trying um, her mom tried to replace him with other folks and it just didn't work out because it wasn't, you know, it's got to be really genuine and it's like a pretty big relationship there. So I'm like, okay, I can get out of this rabbit hole and just back off and just be like, okay, this is, um, you know, this is just our situation. This is, this is where we're at and I'm doing the best I can and I know I'm doing the best job I can do and it's really good for her and she's doing great and she's a great kid. And again, what, what can I do? The only thing I do have control over is giving her the tools that she needs to be able to express herself, making sure she's got a what I call a talking helper at her age, but like a therapist or a mental health provider that can help her if she has questions about this stuff and just let her know that she can always talk to me if she wants to. But, you know, I feel like that's, I mean, that's, I feel like that's the best I can do for her. I can't, you know, create a, um, you know, a father for her that's different because I just don't have control over that. But that's, that's definitely a hard one. I do, I don't regret that because I don't regret the decision. But um, yeah, it's just kind of a tough one to kind of deal with. Yeah. When you talk about how can I fix this and it relates to your daughter, I think I think that's more of a mama instinct than an engineer instinct. Um, and you're one heck of a great mama. That's one thing we've we've learned over the years of knowing you. <laughs> Melanie, I'm wondering if when we talk about being proud of yourself, I'm wondering if you recognize how valuable it is to us to this community, this recovery community that you are actively participating. Sherry and I just met you recently. Um, and here you are on a podcast episode. Um, you have been through something so uh, devastating and traumatic that it would be really easy for you to kind of um, go inward and run and hide. And um, But instead you're giving back and you're sharing your experience with your kids and your parenting and what they've been through. Um, and, and, you know, you have every reason to, to choose not to, do you realize how valuable this is, um, to be talking about it this way? Um, to me, it's valuable to me, but no, I guess I really didn't think of it from perspective of it being of value to other people. Um, uh, I, I guess I can think about that. I, I haven't really thought about that, that perspective. Um, yeah. Well, <laughs> Well, I hope that I hope that you do. I hope that you realize that. I mean, this this kind of stuff is all about 
the, you know, the word that was used recently that really stuck for me is belonging. Um, hopefully you're getting a lot out of participation, but you're also giving a lot back. Um, because I know, I know that what you are experiencing is the biggest fear for a lot of people. And so your yeah. willingness to come out and, and talk about it, um, you know, makes it rather than the demon that lives in the back of the closet. It's, it's something that you're out, out talking about. And, uh, that's really important for other people to process. So good, good. Yeah. yeah I, and just to go back to your previous question about, uh, uh, trusting somebody <laughs> ever again. Um, I have dogs and I'll, if I ever want more loving, I'll just get more dogs. That's where I'm at right now anyway. <laughs> well, good. I'm glad you volunteered to answer that because the last thing I was going to do is ask <laughs> right. a, a, someone who's uh, been a widow for under a year, whether she, how she felt about dating. So yeah, even no, I'm not no, dumb no, enough no. to ask that question. Dogs, that's the way to go. Yeah. Dogs, I love yep, it. Got <laughs> Thank you all so much for being here and participating. Um, I, I know that we this was a multi-part question that our listener had, and it wasn't one that Sherry and I could do it justice. So we thank you so much for being on and, and uh, helping break this down. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.